Hello everyone and welcome to another weekly episode of Inking Out Loud. I'm your host Rob Santos and I'm joined as I always am by my co-host Drew McCaffrey. What's up Drew? How's it going everybody? Now, we're starting book 13 of The Wheel of Time today, Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson's Towers of Midnight. And we read for this week everything up to and through chapter 29. So now, let's get a quick recap from Drew as to what happened. My man, what happened this week? Man, so much happens in the first half of this book. I mean, it is just yeah. <laughs> one thing after another. I, I mean, the <sighs> the prologue is crazy. We get uh, the revelation that Grandal did not die. It was Arangar who died. Yeah, we did. Um, we get Lan uh, beginning to gather his uh, army as he marches across uh, the, the borderlands. Um, reluctantly gathering I mean, his army. Very reluctantly uh, gathering yeah, his army. Galad is arrested by Asunawa and begins to get tortured. I, I mean, it's it's crazy. And then, of course, one of the uh, uh, best scenes Robert Jordan ever wrote, in my opinion, would be Heath Tower with uh, Malinarin as so- the Troll Accords descend. Uh, but yeah, from there though, that's that's just the prologue. Um, we we have a whole lot more with Perrin and Galad, uh, where uh, the children realize that Asanawo is unstable and and causing dissension and infighting, and so the Lord's Captain have Asanawa executed and officially like ratify Galad as the Lord Captain Commander. Um, Perrin's army leaving Malden. Uh, runs into the children, and at the end of this part, Perrin agrees to go on trial, um, which is quite a decision. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, Rand uh, comes down from Dragon Mount. He is now uh, Zen Rand, or Jesus Rand, or whatever you want to call him. I call him Zen Rand. And he finally, finally, in book 13 of The Wheel of Time, Rand steps foot on the island of Tarvalon and enters the White Tower. And uh, he informs Egwene that he is going to break the seals in a month and that she should, you know, uh, meet him at the Field of Marilor uh, because she's like, uh, no, you're not going to do that. And he says, yes, I will. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's all set up. Meanwhile, uh, Rand heads back to Tyr, where Alana has gone missing. Um, but when he returns to Tyr, we uh, have the discovery that Rand can now just plain see Dark Friends. Uh, he unmasks Weirman and Anayela and, and allows them to go free. Um, he's reunited with everybody, you know, as as himself, you know, as a, a, a more stable person. Um... Rodel Iteralda, we get a lot of him in this section as he is defending Maradon from uh, a massive, massive Trolloc invasion. Uh, the Saldeans eventually open the gates and allow his forces to retreat inside the city. And the city begun uh, is, well, basically the city is overrun and uh, Iteralda is waging a guerrilla war inside the streets of Maradon. And then I think all that's really left is uh, Matt, where 
He is in Camelin now. The Golom is around, has started killing people. R.I.P. Lopin, R.I.P. Yeah. Borderen. Yeah, oh man. Um, but a good chunk of the Ebudar crew that we've gotten used to has now left to go back to Tarvalon in the White Tower. So Matt is kind of more on his own than he has been in a while. He makes an agreement with Elaine to start producing dragons. And uh, Elaine, oh yeah, Elaine also makes a couple of very foolish decisions and gets herself badly injured. So yeah, she does. <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, that's about it for. You know, I say that's about it, but yeah, it was a, a long, whole, long recap. <laughs> a whole ton of things happening in the first half of this book. Um, my style points are fewer than they were last week or the week before because you know we we're we're starting. I shouldn't say we're starting. Sanderson is starting to hit his stride in the Wheel of Time. Um, but I, I do want to open our style discussion with a part of the prologue that I found particularly fascinating. And that was Pod and Fane and how he was written in the prologue. Yes. And, and I don't know, Drew. You, you, you know more than I do, so I guess you would be the first person I'd ask. If not, I would just go to Google. But I, like, I don't know if Jordan had any input with Pod and Fane on the ending of the series, or especially like on a word-by-word -word level of the actual writing of Pod and Fane's scenes, but it reads very Brandon-esque. Like, what do you think? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, Brandon wrote all the Pod and Fane scenes. Um, right? I don't yeah. know how much was in the notes uh, direction-wise. Uh, I think at least some of it, if not all of it, was. Um, especially given uh, Fane's... I mean, this is... This is a little further ahead, but Fane's interaction with the Red Veil, Aiel, mm. which we know were directed by Robert Jordan. So, okay, okay, um, yeah. Like I, I did like the manner in which this scene was styled, though, like in how it was written. That like the madness itself being treated in then Fane's head like an object or like a lens to see things through. It's it's treated like a character in its own way, and it's it's just wild the way he says you can see something with madness hold something with madness or some such like i don't know exactly what the word by word breakdown was but that was some downright disturbing but incredible writing and i i loved it oh yeah i agree um the fane scenes at the beginning and end of this book are uh really well done and have always stuck with me in their creepiness yeah and it, I, I guess it's part of why i'm so disappointed in the future but i'm not gonna go too far into that right now <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll we'll discuss we'll discuss that when we get there. Yeah, but uh, um, I I do want to stick with the prologue in the style yep. discussion and once again touch on um, uh, Heath Tower. Good, so that's my next know, point. Yes, okay. We know this is one of the three prologue scenes in the last three books. Written by Robert Jordan. See, we you say we know. I just found out that was like last week or the week before that, perhaps. I'm oh, just oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You, you're the one that broke it to me. I was like, what? Heath Tower was Jordan? Yes. Yeah. So, um, but I think it makes sense in a lot of ways, and it's another one of these touchstones for us as readers that gives us a little glimpse of what could have been had things gone differently in Robert Jordan's life had he hung around point. longer um, because pretty much all the scenes that we know for sure he wrote in these books are among the best scenes in these last three books things like Egwene's conversation with Varen 
this Heath Tower scene, the Tower of Genji sequence, stuff like that, just incredible work. Robert Jordan really was on his game for the bits that he wrote that made it into these final three books. I'm really struggling not to explode right now at a piece of information that I just learned right now. <laughs> um, the the, uh, the Tower of Genji sequence was also Jordan? Yes. Are you kidding me? I You're am not. not. Jo- you wouldn't be joking about that. Why am I asking? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get there. Uh, yeah, I don't want to go into specifics. Our second... Our second book, but I'm yeah. I'm really struggling right now. When we get to it in the next episode, you're gonna you're gonna hear the reaction that I I wish I could give right now. <laughs> um, yeah, Heath Tower, absolutely incredible. Um, I want to ask what you meant about it. Actually, no, I guess I just got my answer when you were, during your intro when you said uh, you introduced it as the best scene that Jordan never wrote, or maybe you say ever wrote, perhaps. What, what, uh, one of the best scenes he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe you probably said ever. So there's an ever. emotional impact. That's in what that I mean. Scene. It's such yeah. an emotionally wrought scene, and I hadn't considered Jordan, not to, not to say he can't write emotion, but I hadn't considered him on Brandon's level of that personal, tear-jerking kind of heart-ripping scene like this. When when we find out that, uh, I forget the I forget the kid's name, but he's he's become a man in his father's eyes now, and his father is so proud of them on the eve of their death because of this decision that he made. I was just like, wow, I can see Jordan, I can see Jordan... Uh, planning this scene, I can't see him writing on a word-by-word level that the, the, in, the, in the manner that Brandon moved me in this scene. I don't know. I, it just it blows me away that he wrote that. That's amazing. So good. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's a special moment in these books, yeah. uh, and I think I think we we compared it. Uh, back on our Warrior of the Altai episode with Daniel Green, there's a specific moment in Warrior uh, that has a similar feel to it. This, um, there's like the emotion of manhood and brotherhood, uh, coming of age, and other men celebrating, and and just yes, yeah, 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 just beautifully, beautifully written. Um, it, it's. Uh, his son's name is Keemlin, by the way. Keemlin, thank you. Uh, Malinarin's son, yeah. Yes. <clears throat> but uh, but going from there, I have one more style discussion. Okay. And that is around Matt. <laughs> okay. And and you, you said, you know, you mentioned going in that this is where Brandon is finding his groove with the Wheel of Time and, and things are cooking along. And in large part, I agree with that. Um, and some, there is some improvement with Matt in this book over uh, The Gathering Storm. I'll drink to that. Some, yeah. However, the worst thing he ever did with Matt <clears throat> is in the section we just read. Yeah, I actually have that written down. <clears throat> Pardon me. I just thought my Coke went down the wrong hole. <coughs> Pardon. But I have that written down in my uh, Matt section specifically what I think you're about to say. But this also does fit as a style discussion, though, so let's bring it up. Let's dive in. Snap your gloves on, ladies and gentlemen. The letter. Yep. Uh, The unexpected letter. Um, So, first off, this is... Oh, this uh, is first off. Oh, you're really going in. Okay. (laughs) Let's feel it. Go on. (sighs) Matt is not illiterate. No. We've not. seen Matt write letters before. We've seen Matt write 
letters to royalty before. The guy knows how to write. He knows how to spell. There's no, like... Matt regresses to, like, a six-year-old in this scene, in, in this letter. And... Just so much about Nine. how um, how Matt Matt's voice comes through in this is just plain not Matt. Mm-hmm. And I've seen I've seen some people try to argue online that's like, oh, Matt wrote it sloppily like this on purpose. And I don't buy that. Because that's not Matt's like the, it's still not Matt's voice. These these moments where he like writes perturbed and then says that means angry yeah yeah and 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 then ps salutation means greeting and then pps don't mind the scratched up words and bad spellings i was going to rewrite it but tom is laughing so hard like that's not matt it's a great joke it's a great joke. I, see, and it's I hilarious. disagree. I didn't think it was Matt. that funny. See, yeah, yeah, that, that goes like, into what we say about Brandon Sanderson's humor and how that's you know very subjective yeah. across the fandom as well. See, I think it's a funny joke. It's funny, but it's so not Matt that I just cringe and I just wanted to get yeah. away. I'm just like, nope. If that was coming out of well, if that was coming out of the low pen, I think it'd be like that's. It sounds like the low pen wrote that right or Wayne. Letter. It sounds like Wayne like, wrote what, it. Yeah, you know what? Wayne is actually a better example. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. Wayne wrote that book, and I'm just like, what the heck. This is, yeah. uh, I don't even know what to say. I, I don't know who was thinking what at the time, but it just feels so wrong. I, I can appreciate the situational humor. The contents mm-hmm. themselves are funny, but the fact that it was just so not mad makes me want just, oh my god, I don't know. It barely even felt epic fantasy, <laughs> you know? It's just, no. Sure. You said six-year-old, it, to me it felt like reading a nine-year-old. I'll give him that much credit. I was like, okay. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a nine-year-old, like a yeah. third grader, like, like a, a third, third grader, grader who just yeah. learned a couple of new words with like, his two friends I mean, snickering it's... behind his back. That's what it feels like reading. I was like, what? right, like there's, there's right. going to be a booger smeared on the top corner. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah, and then and then the other side of my criticism of Matt in this book and the way he's written, and this very much falls on Brandon Sanderson's shoulders, is the cursing. Um, you can just tell like he doesn't understand cursing <laughs> wait a second wait a second which curse isn't uh, is there one in particular that you can give me because i may actually like well cursing. so so it's bloody ashes sure and this is like the 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 dumbest little thing the dumbest little thing that uh, is a major hang-up for me okay in brandon's hands it's bloody ashes at no point in all of the books that Robert Jordan wrote does a character say just bloody ashes. It's blood and it's bloody blood ashes. It's blood and ashes. Blood and bloody ashes. Like, blood and fire. Like, things like that. It's yeah. never bloody ashes. And then, every time with Brandon, it's bloody ashes. And, and it, there's just, like, a feel to how the cursing comes across especially in Matt, uh, in Matt's scenes, where it feels artificial. It doesn't have the natural um, kind of taste, the natural flavor of (laughs) profanity that you could tell Robert Jordan understood. And, And this is something that I've talked about in Brandon's other books that we've covered, where I have issue with his cursing. Um, and, And, like... 
I mean, it's just a natural thing, right? Like, Brandon is Mormon, mm-hmm. and he he's not a guy who's going off and cursing up a storm. He's He was never that kind of person, right? It, 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 when you compare the, the cursing in his writing to, obviously, Robert Jordan or somebody like Matthew Stover or Scott Lynch, you can tell these are guys who have curses in their daily vernacular. <laughs> they, have a, they have curses in their soul. Yeah, and, and that's just not the case with, with Brandon. Well, in, in, in terms of the Wheel of Time, I think Robert Jordan, and myself, I think Robert Jordan was so prim about how he approached a lot of it that it felt artificial to me the entire time. And then seeing Brandon apply a lot of that same oh. formula, I'm going to go ahead and disagree vehemently with what you just said. I think... Brandon's wheel time cursing, from what I can remember at least, there might be a couple examples that you could bring up that make me go, that might make me go, oh yeah, it's not very good. But from what I can remember, I think I enjoy almost all of it. But a couple like really memorable ones come out to me. Like for example, when I think it was in, actually in the previous book when Matt asked Talmanis, I think it was, where on the Dark One's blistered backside are we? I actually love that one. That one made me guffaw at the time. You didn't like? Did you like that one? No, because so one of the things with. Um one of the things that makes uh, cursing effective in uh-huh. a lot of ways is the simplicity of it. And in in Brandon's hands, cursing gets really convoluted. I and it, 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 it gets really deliberate in its like delivery, where, where he's trying to be clever with his curses rather than make it, like, put emotion and passion into it. Because that's the heart of what cursing is. It's an expression of an emotion, usually distaste. And and what Brandon does with it is try to make it clever and funny rather than angry. <laughs> I don't know. Like like I could say the exact same thing, for example, about my favorite Robert Jordan curse that he ever he ever wrote while he was alive, and that was Sheep Swallop and Bloody Buttered Onions. I, right, like that but, one's just so, as convoluted and as complex, and I love it just as much for the same reason. But there's a core of anger in that that I don't get in Brandon's cursing. I guess it kind of made there's too much B in that one. It makes me see it feel like yeah, like, like you can you can tell <laughs> that that's a constructed curse, right? Mm. Like like that Brandon sat down and was like, hmm, what can I write here? <laughs> It, it 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 didn't feel natural like and and that's what that's to me the the biggest departure whereas in in Robert Jordan's hands all of the cursing felt natural it felt like something somebody would just spur of the moment say not something that somebody had to stop and think for a few seconds and be like ooh that's that's good yeah i'm going to say that like yeah. I'm thinking now of the time that I proposed I was like we should write wheel of time curses that sounds like a fun example now I don't know if we want to do that. <laughs> I know. know, and I remember when you said that, and I kind of just like yeah, you were just past like because uh, I didn't want to do that. Maybe okay. I remember you being very <laughs> underwhelmed by that uh, <laughs> suggestion. I can kind of see why you'd be a little underwhelmed by that suggestion. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I personally, like every time Sanderson, I think every time Sanderson employs his cursing in the Wheel of Time, I personally enjoy it. I think a lot of other people do, but I, I can see what you're saying. It does yeah. clearly come across as constructed. Absolutely. But for mm-hmm. me, the humor's not lost in that fact. Like, it, it's just those moments that it take me out of the story. It, mm. it Okay. It's moments like that where I can see the author's hand on the yeah, page, I think and I'm that like... Yeah, might be you know, because of your 
<clears throat> experience as a reader and a writer, especially as a writer. Yeah, but for the average fan, it could be. Yeah. It could be. Um, um, that could be an esoteric yeah, issue. Yeah. Um, that was so. That was my last uh, like style style I have note here. <laughs> two more. One of which is actually not really a point. Actually, there's three more. One of which is not really a point. Um, it'll just be a single uh, thing to say. But I do want to talk about this decision to include the dark prophecy about Perrin in particular. Yes. Okay. Because it shocked the hell out of me the first time I read it, as I'm sure it was meant to. Um, but how how did you feel reading that for the first time? Did you think, did you actually, for example, fear for Perrin's life? Did you think, oh, crap, this could literally be a big deal for him? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I, I vividly remember reading that the first time and being, you know, pretty shaken by it. Uh, especially because the only other time we've seen a dark prophecy, the things in that dark prophecy came true. And I know, um, I know Brandon is on record as saying that, like that first Dark Prophecy, everything in this Dark Prophecy did end up coming to pass. Just not, you know, in the straightforward manner we may have thought. Just like every uh, other <laughs> prophecy that's come true in the past, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So... Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, but but it, it was well written. Um, I liked, um, in general, I liked a lot of Brandon's um, work on these sort of apocryphal texts. You know, the epigraphs and and the prophecies and and things like that. Um, I thought he did a pretty good job of aping Robert Jordan's style. Mm -hmm. And I know he likes to say, like, oh, I didn't try to write these books in Robert Jordan's style. I wrote them in my own style. Um, there definitely were points where he, in, in things like this, for continuity's sake, he had to write it in the same style as Robert Jordan would write it. You know, like, otherwise it just, it wouldn't feel right having a prophecy that sounds completely different from every other prophecy in the series, right? So. Yeah, for sure. But I think he did a good job with that. I it, think he did a good job with it that. It chilled me when I first read it, and I did myself, to answer my own question, I did myself fear for Perrin's life at that point, or for who I thought, you know, was going to be Perrin. Um, now, Chapter 7 I want to discuss as well, because with Sanderson's stylistic approach here, we get some very brief, frantic switching in points of view. Between Galad mm -hmm. and Perrin, as each recognizes yes. the danger that the other, you know, poses, and they're they're gearing up for big problems. And this is something that I found to be just dripping Sanderson, and it, it works so well with these two characters. Because as as Wheel of Time books, they're expected oh, to be there's expected to be big things happening in gradual ways all throughout the world. Jordan was a master at pulling that off. But there's times just like this where I feel like Brandon seizes onto something and he chases it where things like they just start to happen and they tumble completely out of control and it goes to a place that's epic or wonderful or both so i want to ask what do you think about the stark contrast of their styles here and how brazen it was because i think it was risky but i loved every word yeah so <laughs> i haven't given as much uh you know time to literary analysis of these books until this reading. Um, and so I didn't really notice how pronounced 
the POV shifts were in this book especially until this read through and man there was one chapter I don't remember which chapter it was um, but it was like rapid fire going back and forth from Perrin to Galad as they're kind of maneuvering and getting news about each other's camps and mm-hmm. I mean they were they were probably just in that one chapter like nine or ten point of view breaks flipping back and forth it was I mean it was crazy yeah some of which were and like not even half of a page I think it, at the yeah racist. yeah and uh, and the only time I could think of where we had Robert Jordan using that many point of view breaks in a single chapter is with the Chilean call at the end of Winter's Heart. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But that's different because, yeah, there were a bunch of point of view breaks, but there were tons of different points of view as well. Here, we're (laughs) flip-flopping between two characters. In Winter's Heart, we went from Cadswain to Varen, to Eben Hopwell, to Demandred, to Olivia, to Magedian, to Arangar, to Osangar. Like, we went all over the place yeah. with that. It was his way of showing us all sides of this conflict. Whereas here, it's just like, there, there isn't a battle going on or yeah. anything. It's, a, it's like political maneuvering, and it's just these two characters reacting to each other packed into one chapter yeah and and the, so like, it would have been so easy to, to present some of this from Fael's point of view or even have a point of view from mm-hmm. Lane or something like that and the same from galad's point of view you could you could have a born hauled it'd be really screwed up to have a, a child br point of view there but like you like he had so many other options particularly on Perrin's side to to present this in some cases from other points of view and he still chose to stick to his guns and just give give us that straight mm-hmm. back and forth flash flash that frantic what feels like it's going to be a first third of the book climax and it's just the, the momentum yeah. built up in this scene is just it's it's a it's masterful it's so well done very well done i agree um, yeah, yeah I, I think that's a really good point yep. to make Uh, my last style point is not a point. It's just the one thing I'm going to disclaim before we jump into our characters. I have pretty much nothing to say on Elaine for this part. Her sequences are so boring that I I, I just... (laughs) I can't find a to give. Wow, okay. I mean, I I had a (laughs) couple of small things to say about Elaine, but uh, I guess I could get those out of the way now. Um, Sure, if you want to dive right uh, into the characters, let's do it, man. this, This decision she makes to go into the, you know, the cell... Um, this is up there with her decision in Knife of Dreams to go to the um, the house on Full Moon Street uh, without the warders and everything uh, for her dumbest decision in the entire Ugh. series. I mean, it's so it's this is the sound of me face palming with force. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Um, I've been on record a lot in these episodes defending Elaine. I I like Elaine a lot more than many people do, but I, I do get frustrated with her and the people who, you know, take issue with some of her decisions in these later books are spot on her willingness to use Min's viewing as some sort of ironclad plot armor is not smart. 
especially because men's viewings aren't, you know, like when, when the pattern's unraveling, reading the pattern may not be totally, you know, safe to, to put stock in. So, yeah. Um, but other than that, though, uh, so I, I found some of her political maneuvering in this section interesting. Uh, I liked how smart she was um, grasping the implications of gunpowder and cannons <laughs> and, yeah. and knowing that, you know, hey, I have a I have a jump on the rest of the world here if I can, you know, get my hand in the pot. So she makes a smart decision for Andor here. Yeah, I will not argue her her uh, her capability as a ruler uh, to be inadequate. Like I would, she definitely shows herself to be competent. She shows herself to be intelligent. And for the the, the rare times where I do feel like some political intrigue and, and a little more complexity with my plot, and to 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 dive in on levels that I haven't before, there is a lot of that to be gleaned out of these chapters of hers. Like she's definitely competent it's just from from my i just it's so impersonal for a large part with i just i don't i'm not invested in anything she has to do until she meets up with matt and we start to see okay she's yeah she's she's understanding something large and she's preparing not only herself and but the entire world for it so that's that is redeeming but oh my god i am just so done with i would like i just i would I, I would love to read about her from a detached point of view just like tell us what she's up to another character gives us an update i i hate her <laughs> head oh, i just hate it right now i hate it okay okay well uh let's let's move on to perrin from there sweet okay um we're getting into sanderson's perrin and a lot of people oh. most people you know they, they really love how he portrayed that character i caught myself among that number it's very clear to see that perrin felt you know comfortable to brandon as and he still reads very yes. much in my opinion like jordan's parent what about you i agree uh i think brandon understood parent mm. he understood the the personality and the the character of parent better than he understood most of the other characters i mentioned uh on our last gathering storm episode how brandon says you know parent was his his like best stepping stone into the wheel of time and and i said oh you know i think he he might have written rand better in gathering storm than he wrote perrin and i still stand by that but uh his understanding of perrin's internal struggle uh is on full display he he understands how a man like perrin would handle the hurdles in his life and how he would react and and go about achieving his goals uh better than for instance he understood matt i was gonna say is it or, kind of like the opposite you know, of what you're saying about matt in terms in in terms of the fact that perrin still feels and sounds like quintessential mm -hmm. perrin mm -hmm. at heart and and it is really interesting to know that most of this parent stuff here is purely Brandon. Robert Jordan left very little direction about how to get Perrin from Malden to the last battle. Really? Yeah, so so it was up to Brandon to piece together 
the plot around Perrin and and complete his character arc the way he does. And I think he does a really will, good job. I will drink to of, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, a really good job making it fit in, you know, the familiar bounds of the Wheel of Time. And sure, there are some very Sanderson-esque elements to it. Perrin's, uh, you know, his Teleron Riyadh training and... And uh, well, just the point of view. Some of the battles, parents. Some of the battles <clears throat> that he has with uh, Slayer are very reminiscent of things in some of Brandon's other books, like <laughs> Mistborn and the Stormlight Archive. Yeah. Um, you know, where you can you can really see his fingerprints on that. But it's not so jarring. It's not so off. He's not breaking the established rules to write his own thing. You know, it 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 all fits. So. I liked how Brandon handled Perrin. Yeah, I mean, I loved how Brandon handled Perrin, but I'm still getting more and more frustrated with Perrin as a character, <clears throat> which, you know, goes to speak a lot about sure. Sanderson's talent in writing that character. Perrin's refusal to take responsibility for people en masse. You know, mm -hmm. I just I keep continuously being surprised that he's still denying leadership, even at this late point in the series. Uh, right. Even going so far as to... If I recall correctly, it was Will Alcine he told to take down every banner and just burn it. Correct. He's was that like, the Wolfhead banner? No, was no the, more Wolfhead banner. That was yeah. Wolfhead banner. Okay. Wow. I thought it was, for some reason I was like I must be misremembering. It's it's. Well, I mean he he's banner. been he's been griping about the Manetheran banner for like six books now. So. Right. Oh, and the Wolfhead banner <laughs> as well. That's just like yeah. His his I will say though it, he is still slightly redeemed in the fact that he's willing to accept training under Hopper in Teleron Riyadh. It, it still makes him tolerable for me. It shows that he accepts that he has more power to earn, more 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 I should say more experience to have. But it's ah, parents. It frustrates me when he's just sitting there and he's doing everything he can to refuse responsibility for people. Yeah, and it, it's really deftly done how. Uh, the ultimate solution to Perrin's responsibility issues uh, is tied into the solution to his wolf issues. You know, where he, he has to accept some things about himself and take responsibility for himself, and then he can accept taking responsibility for others who look up to him. Yeah, and that's you something... Know, so much of his, his wolf conflict, his wolf brother conflict, has been this fear this fear of losing himself and being like, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, if I'm, if I let being a wolf brother happen, I'm going to turn into a wolf. It's just going to happen where, you know, as we'll see, it's not as simple as that. And, and he has to take responsibility for his wolf brother nature. Yeah. And we're going to have so much and, more to talk about in the next book on that too. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but, but here we see him finally taking the steps to next book, accept next that responsibility. Where he goes to Hopper and he says, yes, I need to learn. Train me. You know, uh, that's the first stepping stone to taking full responsibility for his power as a wolf brother. Yeah. No, I didn't mean to say the last, for the next book. I meant to say in the next part. We're going to have so much more to discuss in part two of Towers of Midnight. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's <laughs> boundless. That's what I was referring to. I don't know why I said next book. That was just mm -hmm. a slip of the tongue. Um, I, I'm really glad that Perrin and Fael also had their moment in Chapter 16. You know when they confessed uh, a shot lot of heart. yeah, to one another. You know, 
it's always rewarding to see a relationship break through a ceiling, take a next step. You know, as much bitching as I've done about them and them being particularly fail, you know, I was, I was happy for both yeah. of them in this scene. But I wanted to, to wrap up my parent points here with one indignant all-caps question I had here for you, Drew. Why did we not continue for one more chapter this week? You jerk. <laughs> this The next scene is my favorite in the entire book. It catches up the two plot lines as well. I got there and I saw the end of chapter 29. I was like, no, 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 no. We cannot, we cannot stop there for this week, you bastard. How am I supposed so to not read that I, next uh, scene? I almost... Um... I almost messaged you a couple of days ago to say that we actually should stop after chapter 25 um, because we read more than half the book for these uh, wow. for this week. Uh, when I originally did it, I just chopped it in half at chapter count where you. we have 57 chapters. And so we read 29 of them. Um, uh, but it, the, by page count, we read a, a good chunk. We read about 40... 40 or 50 more pages than halfway. So. <laughs> Damn. I would have loved that extra one chapter because I was, I went and read it anyway. Like, how am I not supposed to read the next chapter knowing what's going to happen in the next chapter? And then now, <laughs> how am I supposed to sit here and not it talk is, about how awesome it is? I'm it so is mad great. at you right now. Well, well, but this is, this is one of the <laughs> things that we're, we're getting into with these later Wheel of Time books is part two of like the last four books has kicked off with just insanity. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, where where you know, we're gonna get into in part two of this, that parent chapter, and then a storm of light right after that. You know? Yeah. Oh so <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm like shivering here. Should we jump wait, wait, into wait, I have sorry, go ahead. I have one more uh thing to talk about with Perrin and okay. Fayil, and I'm glad you, you briefly touched on it. And that is um his relationship, you know, the their relationship. So as a as a married man myself, and I kind of wish Lauren were here on this episode, uh, my wife, but she's working today. So, uh, um, she works at a brewery, which is apparently essential in Colorado. Uh, duh. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, one of the things that has made our marriage work as well as it has, has been constant and open communication and understanding. And that just wasn't there with Perrin and Fayil. <laughs> yeah. Most of the communication was one way from Fayil to Perrin via scent. And that's not healthy because Perrin is interpreting these scents in his own way and Fayil's not, you know, like she's giving him mixed signals where she has one scent you know, that parent's picking up on and then she's acting in a completely different way because she wants to try to like hide it, you know, or she's legitimately manipulating him because that's what her culture has trained her to do and it's it just becomes this really unhealthy boiling pot of potential disaster in a relationship and here finally we get some genuine communication between the two of them the you know they're they're opening their books to each other and talking things through and finding ways to you know understand each other and understand where they're they're each coming from and and it it was such a breath of fresh air like <laughs> yeah it goes to show what those characters could have been 
by now if they yeah. had if they had just reached this moment so so much earlier. Which and for them it hasn't been too long. They've been married at this point, married for what a year at this point, and change. Ooh, Ooh. Uh, and they spent so a, few, a couple Shadow months apart. Rising, they got married summer of. Yeah, it's been about a year. They got yeah, married year, would right? have been like summer of spring summer of uh 999 and then at the point we're at now it's like late summer maybe fall uh 1000 any. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe a little more than a year. Yeah. How long were they separated for? A couple months, I think, right? At least a month. Oh, how many knots? I mean, <laughs> parent yeah. counted, right? Was it like I know at one point he had 23 knots on his rope, but there were there was a little more time after that. Mm. I mean, it was a it was a battle month. Okay. Yeah, so I mean they they've been married for about 11 months, granted they knew each other for a few weeks beforehand, but you know, they still have a lot to to learn about the nature of of marriage. I I think this coming from a yeah. single guy, but you know, it's 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 rewarding to see them taking those steps. And uh, there's there's a lot to it be is. enjoyed about those characters when they finally have those barriers out of the way. And I think it says something for Brandon uh, as not only a writer but as a married man himself that uh, pretty sure this scene was all him. You know, like this was not something Robert Jordan directed needs to happen. Um, this falls in that muddy in between area where there just wasn't much on Perrin. Uh, that it was Brandon thought this was something that needed to happen for Perrin. Right. So maybe it's, and for it feels so much more natural because of that. You know, yeah, and organic, uh, I should say. And this is not the only time that we've seen Brandon write, um, you know, a, a well-realized marriage. You know, we'll we'll get into this a little more later this year in Stormlight, and then probably. Uh, next year when we do Mistborn Era 2, um, there there's some really well-realized marriages in those books and, and healthy marriages. I thought you were going to say Mistborn with... 1. I was going to be like, well, I think some fans would have something to say oh, about no, that. I, no, okay. I'm not... <laughs> I mean, we can talk about the relationships when we get there. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah so... I appreciated the inclusion of this moment as a reader and for the characters. Yeah. It was rewarding. Definitely was. Um, so that wraps up my points on Perrin. Who should we jump into next? I have lots to say on Egwene. Lots, obviously. Lots to say on Rand. Uh, some more Matt. A couple more Nynaeve. A couple more on Rodale Teraldo. See, I don't have much on Matt at all, to be honest. No? That okay, I well, haven't Matt already is, said. Is my <laughs> next least, uh, you know bountiful pool upon which to draw for this week. So, um, Matt's challenging me. On one hand, he's got all the swagger and the mischief that most fans love. But he's he's not, as we said before, he's not acting entirely Matt to me. But the seven-striped lass, I want to talk about that chapter. Because okay. as a solo chapter, I remember when it was released for fans. It, yeah, it was the, the scavenger hunt. Yes, and I remember when I read it. And it was, it was a great scene, an amazing scene. Uh, I still think it's it's great, but it, it didn't feel quite right. Like, just Matt agonizing over opening this letter. I don't know, something mm -hmm. about that just felt a little superficial to me. It was done well enough, and that cliffhanger was, was killer. Like, as Matt walks into his tent at the end, and he stops at the uh, smell of yeah. blood. I'm sitting there left at the computer. I, I remember it very, very vividly, sitting there at the computer going, What? <laughs> Tor, why? Why, why? 
Why did we do that to the <laughs> fandom? Oh my god, little did I know what they were going to do in the future with A Memory of Light and then the Stormlight Archive. Jeez, some of those cliffhangers yeah. are amazing. Um, but yeah, we talked about Matt's letter. The less we say that about that right now, the better, I think. Um, yep. I did... Ro- oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, and my, and my final point there, I wrote, sheesh, Matt is going to have to start keeping a spray bottle attached to his saddle or, or hooked on his belt or something because Jolene needs to relax. I mean, he's a Taviran. He's not a <laughs> bloody Sunday pork. My goodness. Calm yourself down, girl. That's yeah. all I got to say about that. Um... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, what we do uh, next? So I just, um, I just realized I left out something major from my recap, and uh, I was, I was kind of flipping through my, my notes here. Um, Nynaeve has officially been raised to I said I. Yeah, yeah. This is and out of two. Yeah, uh, so. I think we got to talk about her because not cool. only, not only is this you know obviously a major major point for her, um, but the circumstances around that test. I mean, maybe you have some notes in Egwene's section as well from this. Nah. The way Nynaeve was treated in that mm-hmm. test was criminal. <laughs> criminal. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it was just so wrong, how how that went down. So, yeah, I mean, I wrote. We finally get to see, yay! You know, the test for Aes Sedai. So much vindication for fans of Nynaeve. You know, overwhelming, blatantly unfair, unfair odds. But for me, it was it was so made worth it by her one on one with Mirella afterward. Mm-hmm. She says, I swear the oath tomorrow. I am free of them for one more night. <laughs> I'm just yeah. ashamed of how badly I wanted Mirella to refuse just one more time in that moment. <laughs> just, oh, man. And they're bonded now. Not even Lynn are finally are. bonded. We've known it's, it's been coming for 12 books now. We're finally here, and it's so worth it. Yep. Great stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you feel great for Nynaeve because... While in a lot of ways, you know, if you if you approach Nynaeve's character from where she stands at the beginning of the series, this is a betrayal of where she started out. If you just go from step one to step 13 here. But so much of that change in between, you know, makes it not a betrayal, but in fact a, a full realization of... Nynaeve's character that she is Aes Sedai now and on top of that she doesn't give away what makes her Nynaeve her core is still there it is so perfect that she is made Aes Sedai despite essentially failing the test and that she uses this as an opportunity to expose the problems and the hypocrisy of the Aes Sedai as an institution Right? Because that's what Nynaeve has yes. always been about. You know, in her judgment of the Aes Sedai, which is largely on point, her criticisms of the Agreed. Aes Sedai are justified. Agreed. They are they are vindicated here. Yeah. I, I, 
I, I've, I've said everything I need to say about how much I love Nynaeve by now. And I'll just reiterate that, that fact. She's perfect. And I just... Mm-hmm. I, I love that character. I, I didn't like that character at all until I hit, like, 26, 27. And now she's one of... She's, she might be my favorite female character in The Wheel of Time. In terms yeah. of, uh, of where she starts, where she ends up, the meaning <laughs> of the journey that she takes, how it changes her, how authentic and organic it feels. It feels despite the stark contrast of these two different people that she starts off and ends off being. And, and how she just continues to do all that while sticking so true to her core being. And just being a nurturing, loving, caring individual who wants nothing but the best for everyone around her. It, she's mm-hmm. awesome. She is awesome. <laughs> um, so I have a quick, couple quick points. Actually, just one, really, about Rodel Iteralda. I just want to talk about how awesome and epic these scenes, these scenes are. Like, oh, yeah. This... This is what I had been waiting for since my early teens. Big-ass battles, lots of shadow spawn, not individual strikes where they're over in the course of, you know, one scene, but a protracted losing battle as the blight is surging. It's so damn heavy metal. The tactics were cool, especially to an inexperienced reader like myself at the time. You know, those clever, mm-hmm. bloody monsters. I was like, oh, shit. And I particularly appreciated how the first of those scenes ended with the battle that just kind of resumes mm-hmm. hopelessly you know it, it gives you that feeling of frantic uh of, of time slipping away it's like you're shouting to rand you're saying listen we have to hurry up there is some serious stuff happening in the borderlands you know it, it, it kind of sticks in the back of my mind as i'm continuing to read all these scenes going forward i, I want i just want the last battle to truly begin and we do get yeah. that kind of excellent moment in in Egwene's point of view when Sylviana, Sylviana, yeah, Sylviana, what am I saying, walks in, her keeper walks mm-hmm. in and informs yeah. her that the Borderlands are at war and that the last battle has pretty much officially begun. It's just, oh, yep. Jeff's kiss, so good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I liked, you know, Iteralda from Knife of Dreams through now, like we're seeing why he's a great captain. You know, why he has this he even, reputation. He's even called on it. What is a great captain mm-hmm. capable of? Are you going to show me? He's like, all right, all right, all right. You might learn a thing or two. Pay attention, son. You know? Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. So, shall we move on to Rand, then? Uh, Sure. Do we want to do Rand last? Or, or right now? Because I still have somebody Egwene to say. Oh, you still have some Egwene. Yeah, uh, let's let's do Egwene pretty quickly here, then. Okay, okay. Egwene, now, more irritating to read than she's ever been. I think, in my opinion. I spent a lot of time last book, like, like champ- championing her. I can't find anything redeeming about her save the occasional intimidating one-liner at this point, in, in this part. Her insistence on formality and private has gone past anything resembling, you know, tough but necessary for now. Uh, and just straight openly into sheer childishness at this point, I think. Yeah. Um, but what really pisses me off on a deep level, because that, I, I admit that's kind of superficial, that previous point that i just made her complete lack of logic in her stance i.e rand in the seals is she completely incapable of the simplest of thought experiments like what is the alternative wait around months this years while the world starves and the trollocs advance this is um where she has bought so thoroughly into the mystique of the white tower and the eyes sedai Mm -hmm. the singular eyes sedai as a symbol and uh, you know that 
she doesn't need to critically think anymore because she has the weight of Tarvalon behind her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's and, a good way and, to put it, yeah. and it's frustrating because of, you know, because we see her earlier in the series actually being pretty clever and thinking things through and figuring things out in in a way that only Aguin can. And she just abandons that now that she's the full on Amerlin. Yeah. And she could just say, like, no, nah, I don't want to because I'm the Amerlin. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, it's so illogical that it defies explanation. Save that Egwene yeah. is just being a spoiled little brat who can't come to grips with the fact that she doesn't rule every single soul on the planet. Yeah. Sorry, that's, that's, that's yeah, pretty it's, harsh. But, it's mm. pretty frustrating. And, and I mean, I don't yeah. want to dig into it because it's just obnoxious, yeah. but her relationship with Gawain is such a mess yeah i mean it's it's a great counterpoint honestly uh i don't know if brandon did this on purpose but it wouldn't surprise me if he did how right when perrin and fayil are reaching an equilibrium in their relationship and and figuring things out egwene and gawain are worse than ever where gawain's leaving to go back to camelin you know and uh, because there's no real communication between the two of them there's there's no honesty there's no uh, i mean i would say no... gowan is being everything honest <laughs> like he's just he's well, well too but honest. It, I, I i when i say there's no honesty i mean there's no honesty between them oh, okay in their relationship um like there's honesty. selfish <laughs> there's selfish honesty but yeah mutual honesty is a good way to put it um, there's like there's no willingness to meet each other halfway. There's no willingness to compromise. Like there's <laughs> there's just yeah. no functional communication between the two of them, and it's awful. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> now, to get slightly past my hatred for Egwene right now, I do really and before we dive too much into Randall Thor because I'm gonna have a lot to say about Rand. Obviously, this book of all books, I do want to talk about their roles now. They being Egwene and Rand. It occurred to me a few days ago that they've they've really done a, a reversal in positions for this book in the last book. Because take the Gathering Storm saw Rand surrounded by advisors, delegates, subjects. He's issuing orders and scale. And we have Egwene imprisoned in the White Tower as a novice, and then mm-hmm. just straight up imprisoned. Met with meeting with with many personal like so like in personal circumstances to influence Aes Sedai and point them in the right direction. But now we've got it kind of reversed, with Egwene consolidating her power, sitting in the Amarillan Sea, while Rand, in his apotheosis, thanks for that word, by the way, great word, Drew, <laughs> uh, oh, <yeah. laughs> trying to correct things in his life on every personal level that he can. And more mm-hmm. and more, like, the characters of Randall Thor and Egwene Alvere, they're being set up as, this, as these ultimate opposing forces to mirror what happened during the Age of Legends. Right? Oh, very Between much, Between the dragon yeah. and, and Latra Posse. Yeah, Latra Posse de Kume. De Kume, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, going forward, I, I, I laughed with horror. <laughs> I laughed with and it found out that laughing with horror is actually possible. When Gawain stepped into Egwene's <laughs> trap, as she walked oh, into yeah. the room, furious. I literally sat there the first time reading that, st- in shock, just staring at that last line. I just went, uh-oh. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, no. And... To wrap up Egwene, I want to say I love one particular line of hers. Just one, so far, in this book. When she tells Romanda, You did not inform me of this meeting, so I assume you do not want my words. I have come merely to watch. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Chills. That's the face of the Admiral that I like. I feel like Egwene could even be my favorite character if we only got to see her from the outside. It's just all of yeah. these scenes where we're stuck in her head that make me want to claw my hair out. <laughs> Man, that, that nice, nice. That's a big Wayne for here. Yeah, <laughs> just have it okay. right now. Okay, let's well let's tackle this beast then. Okay. Because oh, Jesus Rand Zen Rand is such you know such a refreshing turn. I love, you know, the, the way Darkwind was written, you know? Like, yeah, it, yeah. Aesthetically. It was, it was very, very well done. Gorgeous. It was it was compelling. But after so long of seeing his descent, seeing him rise back up now is wonderful. However, oh I will also say, I mean, it's less frustrating now, uh, you know, on a reread, but the first time I read this book, the fact that we didn't get any points of view from him. All of these scenes were from other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. I was so frustrated. I was like, <laughs> what is going on in his head? Yep. Like, yep. <laughs> uh, but but it, was, it was a smart decision. And it's one that I want to compare you know, back to The Dragon Reborn. Uh, with Robert Jordan's decision to have almost no Rand points of view in that book. For, for strategic narrative purposes. And it's the same thing here with Brandon. He doesn't want us to be in Rand's head. He's saving that for a memory of life. Yes. Oh, What's so most much. important here with Rand's character arc is, as you said, he's going around and fixing his personal uh, missteps. And so it's more important that we see from the perspectives of those Rand wronged how they react to him attempting to you know, rebuild those bridges, heal those wounds. Because we already know Rand, the important thing with Rand here is that he's doing this. He's making the effort. Okay, we can see that. We don't need to be in his head to have that happen. It's more important for us to be in the heads of those he's interacting with so we can see the fruits of Rand's labor. It's yes. really smart. It's really, really well done. Oh my god. Like, this This is my favorite character of all time. <clears throat> You know, across across any book, any movie, any game, any comic, even though I don't really read those, any other form of art which you choose to examine, no character tops across any medium my love for this character. Zen Rand changed my life. <laughs> it sounds so it sounds kinda lame to state it that way. He really did. He taught the young testosterone field twenty year old that I was at the time that there's a lot more to strength than strength. I was mm -hmm. I was I was seeing that character who had so recently been the patriarch of all things brutal, impersonal, necessary, and turn into this this open and warm and and more importantly confident symbol of hope. It, yeah. it inspired me a lot in my early twenties and, and and how and it changed how I kind of act around people and it, it really inspired me to relax. And that was also right around the time that I met you. Drew. I was like 20 years old or something like that. Maybe 19 years old. So, you know, with all this happening in the Wheel of Time, we, we got to geek out so hard in the early days of yeah. our friendship. Zen Rand is, marks such a, like a huge pivotal turning point in my life. Like, I mean, oh, I, I don't know how to articulate how much that character has moved me. It's just, it's, for what has been wrought, that chapter, 
I remember yeah. seeing that it might not be such a big deal for a grown man to cry once in a while. You know, mm-hmm. what a like what a masterwork of of character development transition. I feel like I'm there every time I read that scene, like just as a reverent witness, like everyone else. I don't know how Sanderson managed to accomplish this. I wouldn't even know how to unpack it. It's just perfect the way it is. Yeah, it was a great counterpoint to where, you know, Rand left Tam and Min mm. in The Gathering Storm and then seeing him now apologizing. Yeah. Something Rand never would have done before Dragon Mount. So much of his development uh, and learning to be the Dragon Reborn was Rand learning to be unapologetic. Saying, I'm doing this because I have to. I don't need to apologize to you. And then now he's realized, yes, I do have to apologize. I do have to, you know, own up to what I'm doing. And I need to be doing what, you know, what I choose for good reasons. It, it, I can't just dump everything off on, oh, well, I'm the Dragon Reborn. I have to fight the last battle. So that's my excuse. And you can all screw off if you disagree with me. Now he he recognizes the damage he's doing to those he loves, to those around him, those he trusts, because he's been so unapologetic thus far. Yeah. There, clinging to his father, the dragon reborn began to weep. Mm-hmm. I know I say shit like this all the time, but that may be the best line in the entirety of the Wheel of Time. I, 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 that line hit me so hard. I, I, oh my god. I don't know, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I okay. love, going on though, I love the, the level, the added level of just like meta power that Rand is starting to display. We, we, we already have his Taviran effect. We're familiar with that. And there are some other abilities that he has now that we're not going to discuss quite yet. But his ability now to look into a dark friend's eyes and know them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so badass. It's nothing but badass. If I wrote this down, if you could concentrate enough badass into like a small enough volume, and then you condense it into like a physical essence, and then you figured out the boiling point of that essence, and then distilled it forty thousand times, you still wouldn't approach the tenth part of how badass this is. Like, yeah, that probably just pissed so off I'm a bunch glad of you <laughs> you brought this up because this is my moment to uh, give my little defense of Weiramon. That yes. you know, I've mentioned in the past. Um, so we see Rand unmask directly unmask three dark friends in a in a short span in this book. One of them we haven't seen quite yet. It's going to happen in a few chapters. But one of them, the guy throws himself out a window, right? On Ayella, like cries. Oh, the yeah, yeah Torkman. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Anayella like cries out in fear and like turns her face. Weiramon stares him down. Weiramon is the only one who meets Rand's eyes. It says his eyes are like watering in pain, but he meets Rand's eyes. Weiramon is so much more than the the like bantam rooster cocky loudmouth that he gives himself, you know, portrays himself as. We see him, you know take down the facade very briefly in the Path of Daggers when he, like, kind of smacks down Gedwin. Um, 
but but we see it again here. The Weiramon that we're given to understand through most of the series would have been such a pansy in the face of Rand in this scene. But he he has in you know there's more to him. There's more to him. And I I appreciate him as a villain because of that. Hmm. So Well said. Well said. Um it's cool to know that the shadow doesn't need Alana to find him now. Mm-hmm. I was like, damn, and he just knows that the shadow doesn't need Alana to find him now. I was like, that's kind of intimidating. That's pretty cool, though. And and then yeah. the last thing to talk about with Rand for this part, for me, is the return to Bandar Eben in that entire chapter. Okay. So incredible. Why can I not stop glowing if you'll pardon the expression about these Rand solves everyone's problem sequences? It's it's just it's so hilarious and deep at the same time when Rand gets the chance to tease them and us by extension with hints at the nature of his abilities. He goes, "Well, you just happen to open the exact number of rock sacks, you know, like that's technically right. how the pattern, you know, logistically accomplishes it. But the manner in which Rand says it so confidently, almost offhandedly, that's where I draw the humor from. It's just wonderful. I love it. Yeah, uh, it's. Like, there, it's two sides of a coin, right? Like you said, that it's that's the way the pattern accomplishes it. But at the same time, we're given to understand it's like, no. Like, that really was, like, yeah. a direct, if, you know. If this was Dark Rand, Darth Rand, that returned to Bandar Ebon, there, those would have all been continuously spoiled. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It, it's, and, I, yeah. and I love the symbolism around Rand in this, where everywhere he goes, the clouds break. You know, oh yes, the, the sunlight tea tastes comes good through. Suddenly, yeah, and then somebody I, whispers, I, "He's here." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I just specifically, I love the symbolism of the the clouds, like just breaking in an area around Rand. It's the only, the only place where you're going to get sunlight right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because awesome. he he has achieved that level of just transcendence. Transcendence. That's a good way to put it. He is yes. Because the dragon is one with the land. The land is one with the dragon. Yeah, the dragon is insane. And so, as he tells... Damn it, what's the guy's name in uh, in uh, Bandar Eben? The guy starts with, an, starts with an I. The one who's holding the docks. Oh, oh, I don't remember his name. Damn. Return See, to Bandar Eben. That was chapter 25, right? Rand remembers chapter his name. 25. That's the important part. Rand remembers his name. And as he tells that man, he says, it's not, you know... That's not mad. It's the whole world that's mad, my friend. Because Iralin, you know, Iralin, Iralin. Thank you. I was gonna say yes. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I wasn't gonna say Iralin. I was gonna say Iral Iriali. But that's Stormlight. Duh. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that wraps up all of my character points. But sh- I have two questions in my miscellaneous points. More miscellaneous points around them. Do you okay. Have any other character points to get out of the way before we do this though. Uh, just want to give Nynaeve one more shout out for Healing Madness. Oh, that's in my miscellaneous points. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> shout out to my girl Nynaeve. She just up and, and just pulls out another impossible miracle out of her ass. It's like she, she just pushes them aside before breakfast every morning now at this point. I love it. Yeah. So good. It's wonderful. Okay, um, so so let's dive in here. Okay, I remember so so vividly my first impression of every single part of this book. Oh my god. Brandon managed to piss me off in a good way. 
not as a writer, but as an author in a good way, in this scene, for the first time that I can think of, with what was literally the first word of a scene he pissed me off with. And that scene was Grandel sipped on her wine, or sipped on her whatever she was drinking. And I nearly put the book down right there. I was like, what? This bitch is still alive. And then right. it continued inside you know, Natron's Barrow, and I realized what was happening. I realized it was just a, a past sequence. And I was, okay, I was prepared to read Grandel's death. Death. And I was stunned to see that, oh my god, my initial reaction, accurate. Bitch is still alive. <laughs> Damn it. I was so shocked by that. I was like, ugh. It just pissed me off. Yeah. Oh. That was a, a wild revelation. Yeah. The first time. Did you have that same moment I did, though, when you flipped that prologue page and you saw Grandal sipped on her wine did you go <gasps> like I did I uh, like, oh sh-. yes um I think I had a very similar response like yeah. it was like wait 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 what and then <laughs> I was like oh no okay it's it's just a rewind you know a rewind, and then yeah. it ended and I'm like no freaking way yeah oh my God. how uh like <laughs> yeah uh, so apples first Elman Bunt. The return Everything of Elman Bunt. Everything about this scene. Elman Bunt from The Eye of the World is the last time we saw him, wasn't it? Yep. Everything about that scene had me, especially at the beginning of this book when I didn't know the direction that Rand was heading in yet when I read it for the first time. Everything had me just jumping for joy. And you may think I'm exaggerating. Drew, you know me well enough to know that I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> I was so damn stoked for this transformation on, of Rand's that years, years later, I'm still reverent. It's such a perfect mm-hmm. scene in its imagery, in its meaning, the way it welcomes us into the next volume as well as the next stage in Rand's journey. I just, oh my god. It, I was strongly, strongly considering bringing this up as an honorable mention in the most recent episode that we just recorded, not from the regularly scheduled episodes, but the best opening lines or best opening pages. But I couldn't find a way to justify this being as a page or an opener at all because it was like chapter two right so yeah it's uh, after the prologue right oh chapter one um, yeah 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 but, but, still, but I, but I love i i loved um how full circle it was so when i first read this i was like i was actually kind of annoyed that it was elman month that i was like i was like okay like this this almost feels fan servicey Cur- that sure, brandon okay, brought cool. this guy back and then I reread Eye of the World, and I realized, no, it was perfect. Because Elman Bunt talks about how Rand and Matt giving them a ride on his wagon to Camelin. He's like, you know, maybe I'm going to stay. And maybe I'm going to keep going on. Because like, he... Yeah, it was... I think his it was... life is changed. And he... He says in Eye of the World, Robert Jordan lays the stage for this guy to move on and go to Tarbalon and be there for Rand coming down from Dragonmount. Yeah, I think it was it was it was Gowan, I wanna say, who told who was who was interrogating Matt about Randall Thor or asking somebody about Randall Thor and saying, like, all these people who are going on and changing so many things, they all seem to have one yes. thing, this one common denominator in this equation, and they've all met Randall Thor. And he makes specific reference to this farmer. Yep. Like, I was just, ah, oh, it's... Stayed through the winter riots and supported yep. more gays, and yep. Yes. Yep. Ah, <laughs> excellent. Um, oh, the first of my two questions. I'll just ask them two, actually, consecutively here. My first question, who took Alana? It was Shida Haran, right? It's gotta be Shida Haran who took... Alana kidnapped her. 
as one of his oh, final I don't know if we have him. like a very specific answer to that. I mean, it, w- it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I wrote um, down but... probably Shida Haran as one of his final acts in this world before collapsing into spoiler the world's biggest disappointment later in the next <laughs> one. <laughs> oh, but yeah. I, I mean, I don't. I don't think it really matters who took her. It was. It was. Probably the use of the true power in some manner, so they could avoid detection. And oh, I didn't consider yeah. the true power. I was just thinking, like, how could somebody get away with channeling a gateway undetected? I mean, there's ways. I, I'm, I'm sure the force. Yeah, I mean, you have, could you could mask you yourself and invert weaves, your weaves, whatever, but... Yeah, but I don't know. It still struck me as like, damn, it's just like, it, I don't know. It was so ominous. I felt like Shida Haran. It had to be like the last thing he did. I don't know why. I just I'm struggling. I'm reaching for something that he did to have mattered. <laughs> you know. Uh, second sure. question: When Nynaeve is healing or attempting to heal Rand's madness, the shining light in Rand's brain. Anything you want to say about that? Because I know there's no definitive answer to this, but I just want to—I want to throw that out there. I want to dangle it in front of you and see if I get a nibble. What do you think? I've always struggled with that. Okay. Finding an adequate uh, answer for myself. Um, I, I, I recognize what it is, like what it symbolizes, you know, his his apotheosis, his inner peace now, and that, that he's fully realized dragon, um, and that it, like, holds off the madness and all that. Uh, but the fact that the madness is something substantial, that Nynaeve can, like, heal, you know, like, basically she's, like, pulling out these thorns from their yeah. minds throws a wrench in that that makes that glow by necessity be something more than just a symbolic glow. It has to have some substance, some metaphysical substance to actually hold off the madness, right? Like, well, the madness is just a compulsion wave for the true power, right? I mean, sort of, more or less. Um, Essentially, sorry, yeah, it's not. It's yeah, not like a definitive answer, the, but, it's... but but so because of that, this glow has to be something in world. It, it's not just Nynaeve seeing a representation symbol of Rand's inner peace. That wow. glow has, like I said, metaphysical substance to combat the. Uh, sure. Yeah, and so, and I don't have a good answer for what that is. Right, and a lot of characters also say they they can see almost a warping of the air, a glow around Rand at the same time. Like mm-hmm. there are things happening that we that that even our conventional, even like our, our current understanding of, our final understanding of the true power, the true power. Listen to me, the true source, the one power. Like we 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 won't have answers for this, but I I agree. There has to be something greater happening. It's not just a symbol. She's seeing something. Bigger, something that we don't get another glimpse of that I know of yeah. the rest of the series, but I still find it really, really cool. It's 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 totally, totally badass. It's the yeah, dragon so becoming our, one with the, with the land in reality. It's just so cool. For our listeners, uh, you know, when this post goes live on Facebook, uh, chime in in the comments. What do you think this glow in Rand's head actually is? Yeah. I want I want to hear some some good theories. Yeah, for sure, definitely. I'd love to see what people gotta think. Yeah. Uh, the circumvention of the oath rod. 
That was mm-hmm. intimidating. That was all. That mm-hmm. was intimidating with the ease in which that was seemingly done. Oh my god. Um, yeah. Do we think that Brandon perhaps drew upon some fan theories as to how this, the, you know, getting around the oath rod could be done? Because if he, if Brandon himself just came up with three three ways, because he needed to write three ways, that is insanity. I was like, wow. Like, how did he get these ideas? I really don't know. I mean, they may have been in the notes from Robert Jordan. Oh, that's, I didn't even consider that. I hadn't even considered that. Oh, my God. Yeah. But I, I don't know if there's an answer on that, whether that is something Brandon came up with himself or, or if it was at mm. RJ's direction. Interesting. Um, Sylviana entered Edgwing study. I said that already. One more chapter. I said that already. Oh, that's the next part. Yeah, we're good. I'm through all my miscellaneous thoughts and questions. Okay. Well, uh, in that case, do we want to move into the final draft? We can. Again, I'll start it. us off because I have a, another disappointing choice. Well, I mean, it's 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 a good choice, healthy for <laughs> me. Uh, well, actually, no, it's not a good choice, healthy for me because there's still a lot of sugar in it. I am still still uh, refraining from drinking any alcohol. I'm like going eleven days now without drinking anything. I today have just been drinking a standard, plain old, refreshing, refrigerated Coca Cola. Oh, legit. That's all I've been drinking. <laughs> for the entire course of this episode, it's awesome. I mean, I don't I don't drink a lot of soda. Typically, I usually just drink water or whiskey or beer or juice. I don't really drink like fizzy drinks. I don't even mix alcohol with them. Um, but it's it's been a long time. I'll tell you this: it has been a long time since I've had Coke, just plain Coke, and it's really good. I'm just like discovering <laughs> it all over again. I know that sounds sad, but it's delicious. All right. Okay. Well, I, I am drinking a beer. I, uh, I believe I mentioned on our last episode that I was very excited for this one in particular. Uh, I I found this beer, I think, last September. So this has been sitting sitting in my refrigerator for a long time. Damn, that's a long time. Is it I'm rusty drinking a, uh, <laughs> I'm drinking a mixed fermentation saison with honey, coriander, and lemon verbena from Jackie O's Brewing Company in uh, Ohio. Now, so... So, when I say, like, a mixed fermentation saison, um, this is, like, a... a, Oh. There are multiple types of, like, yeast strains and, like, bacteria strains in this beer so that it will develop over time into something more than just the base beer. Okay, okay. Um, This particular one is bottle fermented, so when they bottled it, there were live yeasts in the bottle. Mm. And and it was, I mean, very clear. When I popped this before the episode, it bubbled over quite a lot. Um, uh, But this is just delicious. Um, I'm I'm thrilled with how good this beer is. Uh, Very light. (laughs) Uh, I mean, just just packs like a nice funky punch. It's not like overwhelmingly Brett funky, like Brettanomyces. It doesn't have that like barnyard kind of you know you'll get in some like French and Belgian saisons, but it it has a a, a grassiness to it. Um, you can really taste like the wheat base in it. It's delicious. Anyway, 
why I was so <laughs> thrilled about this beer, though. And that it's perfect for the part we just read. This beer is called Pockets of Sunlight. <laughs> oh, man. I am so glad that I went first for the final draft. <laughs> How the heck am I supposed to follow that up with a regular cold glass of Coca-Cola? A yeah. pocket full of, well, sorry, was it sunlight or sunshine? Pockets of sunlight. Pockets of sunlight. Oh, yeah. man, that is so nice. Yeah. Uh, you, you you immediately thought of that in September, probably. You thought of rain. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, you've, been, you've been sitting on this for <laughs> seven months, eight months? So, yeah, just about seven months. I mean, I don't know if it was for sure September. It might have been August. It was around when we started... Uh, like when we read Eye of the World. So. Oh my yeah. god, were we already on Eye of the World last August? September-ish? I think so. I think oh so. Oh my god. We totally I mean, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what am I saying? We've been recording episodes now for a year and a month, a year and two months now. Because we did Foundry Side at the That's end right. of June. That's right. And then oh we did god. Ruin of Kings in July and we went right into Eye of the World wow. after Ruin of Kings. Yeah. I keep forgetting yeah. how much we've recorded so far. That's amazing. Oh yeah, we're we're cruising now. Um, <laughs> but it's been a, but, a, a somewhat short episode for today. It looks like that's pretty good, pretty efficient of us for a change. Yeah, only an hour, hour twenty ish. Yeah, hour um, twenty ish, something like that. Anyway, man, what what episode number is this? Six. I actually have 60? no idea. I was gonna go and count before this, and I decided, you know what? I'm just gonna say the book. As long as I say which part of which book, people aren't going to get it confused in the order. But yeah, I, I think I, this it's is 61. Like 61 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if it's not 61, you can all yell at me on online. Uh, but hey, hey, yell at me too. Don't just take all the burden <laughs> for yourself. Don't be a martyr. Okay. Don't be selfish, um, Drew. Okay. Okay. I'll I'll let you take that fall. Thank you. Um. <laughs> Uh, anyway, next up, we will be going right into the second half of Towers of Midnight. Um, you know, as always, check us out on Patreon, support the podcast. Uh, you can get early access to our episodes there. Uh, exclusive short fiction written by Rob and myself. Uh, we have some bonus episodes. We just recorded uh, an episode on our favorite opening pages, which Rob mentioned on this episode. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, check us out there. All of those proceeds go toward Danny, our artist, and uh, Pat, our sound engineer. And uh, yeah, as always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. What's up? Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>